0: Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week is the first in our two-part episode on CRISPR. Enjoy.
1: Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm guest correspondent Falguni Joshi. Today we'll be talking about CRISPR, a revolutionary gene editing technology that's been all over the news lately. In addition to looking at the bioethical concerns, we'll explore the ongoing legal battle related to the patents on this new technology. To give us a better understanding of what CRISPR is, we sat down with Dr. Raj Mandel, who's a head and neck surgery fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. In addition to clinical work, Dr. Mandel is actively involved in cancer research using gene editing technologies such as CRISPR-Cas9. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mandel.
2: Hi, thanks. Well, thanks for uh, having me.
1: So let's get started with the obvious question. What is CRISPR?
2: Yeah, so CRISPR is a newly invented gene editing technology that allows scientists and researchers to edit the human genome easily, and at any site. Basically, um, gene editing was possible before the invention of CRISPR, but uh, before it took a lot of time and effort, Use these older technologies called zinc finger nucleases and talons. The problem was with those older technologies, you couldn't really edit the genome efficiently in quicks, if not longer, or months, and many sites of the genome were unsuitable to be edited. But when CRISPR came along in 2013, It made it very simple for any laboratory across the country and even around the world to edit the genome of any animal or bacteria or even a human genome with relative ease as compared to uh, even just a few years ago. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. I know that's a mouthful, but basically what it means is if you've ever heard of a palindrome such as race car Bob, or anything that's spelled the same frontwards as it is backwards. And so basically what that palindrome refers to in the CRISPR sequence is that it is a stretch of DNA, and the the genetic code is made of four nucleotides, G, A, T, and C. And so when you have a combination of those letters that runs the same forward as it does backwards, that becomes a palindrome. And it's interesting that the story of CRISPR actually starts in the early 1980s, where a group of Japanese scientists were studying a gene. It was unrelated to CRISPR, but they had noticed there were stretches of DNA that were the same running forward as it was backwards. They found it to be unusual, but they didn't understand the significance. It would actually take about three decades later for scientists at Berkeley as well as at Harvard to realize what these were, and essentially... They are these palindromic repeats that bacteria had evolved over millions and millions of years to protect their genes against viruses. And only recently, in the last five years or so, have we been able to retool this technology that bacteria have developed to edit genes in our own genome. And so that's kind of where CRISPR gets its name from these clustered, regularly interest-based palindromes found in the genetic code of bacteria that allow for editing in higher mammalian species, including humans.
1: The full name of the technology is CRISPR-Cas9. What does the Cas9 stand for?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the Cas9 refers to a caspase 9. Essentially, caspases are a group of proteins that function As enzymes. Together, the system is called CRISPR-Cas9. Basically, CRISPR finds the DNA of interest and Cas9 serves as the molecular scissors that actually cut the DNA.
1: Can you give us a step-by-step breakdown of how CRISPR is used to modify the genome?
2: Yeah, so kind of like what we had uh, alluded to earlier, an investigator decides what gene he or she would like to edit, say if it's a gene for blue eyes, or if it's a gene for a certain disease, or some kind of other gene involved in a growth process or an infectious process, you identify that gene, you create a guide RNA, essentially a strand of 20 nucleotides consisting of A, C, T's, and G's that are specific to that area of interest. We have a lot of computational tools that we can use to find those genes of interest throughout the genome. We use that strand of DNA, we clone that into the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and now we have a personalized CRISPR to edit that area of the genome. That We can use that to transfect cells and create a genetically modified cell that no longer has that gene of interest because it's been cut by the Cas9 and the CRISPR system.
1: You said something interesting there about blue eyes, and it sounds like you were hinting at the concept of designer babies, Um, and there's definitely been a flood of sensational headlines implying that CRISPR will produce designer babies someday. Is that a potential application of CRISPR, and what other potential applications are there?
2: A lot of the uh, legal and ethical concerns surrounding CRISPR have to do with its potential to edit the genome at the embryonic stage, meaning... At the stage where the, the fetus is developing, current legal restrictions prohibit the use of CRISPR-Cas9 into human embryos at this time for valid reasons. But it is theoretically possible that you could introduce a CRISPR into a human embryo or blastocyst of cells and edit a certain gene that would cause a disease like muscular dystrophy or a cardiac congenital deformity. That being said, you could also CRISPR out the gene that causes certain eye color, or male pattern baldness, or obesity, and this is where the ethical and legal ramifications of CRISPR have really come into play, at least on the theoretical level. Currently, we're still quite some time away from being able to do any of this in practice, but it is definitely that is something that would be feasible using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So that's kind of where this whole debate about designer babies if you will come into play or whether it is ethical or desirable for us as society to say it's okay to edit the gene to prevent a hereditary disease but maybe it's not okay if you want your baby to be taller or stronger or have a certain color eye where you draw that line is something that will have to be decided by the public not the scientific community and the legal implications will Have to be debated by legal scholars as well
1: so it seems very controversial because on the one hand you could prevent your child from having a life-threatening illness but on the other hand should we be able to pick every characteristic our our children will have even the characteristics that can be classified on a more superficial level and it's also a debate of the human condition right because a lot of the struggles we go through regarding our appearances or health can define who we are, and it can build character.
2: Absolutely. And uh, it, again, it's that, that'll be for the uh, public as a whole to debate rather than just the scientific community. It stems back to this argument, just because we can, maybe we shouldn't. And so we have to decide as the science progresses, and the science will progress, where should we draw the line? And at the same time, not to hinder or block science that could potentially save lives because... Maybe certain groups feel uncomfortable with a certain technology that's being invented, but also be respectful to those that feel that we shouldn't be, quote unquote, playing God.
1: We asked Stephen Hollander to weigh in on the bioethical implications of a technology that could permit us to edit human embryos to our preferences. Steve is a member of the New York City Bar Association's Bioethics Committee, where he's chair of the Patent Law Subcommittee. Steve also writes on the intersection of scientific innovation, bioethics, and law. He graduated with a J.D. from the Morris A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University, where he was an associate editor for the Hofstra Law Review.
3: There's issues. There's definitely issues because you're dealing with genes and you're dealing with what exactly should we be able to do with them? What can we do with them? Are there as many as there has been indicated with headlines like designer babies. A lot of these issues we've already discussed, this bioengineering of plants. It's a similar issue of can we take something that's a natural product an organic product, whatever term you want to place it on, that's based out of some set of DNA, some genetic material, and can we play around with it? And now we're having it with humans, which is different than plants, but we've ethicists and bioethicists and legal bioethicists have all written and discussed these issues and we seem to be okay with the idea that we can play with genetic material. Now it's in a different context, so there is a discussion to be had, but we're also not there yet. We're not able to make a designer baby. We could change a specific site in a eukaryotic cell, which is past the prokaryotic cell, but what does that mean as far as the whole organism? Not that much. It's just one specific gene site. So there's issues to be discussed and it's important to discuss it, but it's not as big as it's made out to be. Most likely, as far as making one human being that is designed based on all specific sites of the genetic material, that's probably a good distance away. But we are, we move really fast as far as what we do with science. So it is an issue to think about. It's more of, we might not have to make legislation for right now, but it is good material for biologists to work on and to think about and for scientists to think about and work on. But we are not in a state of panic right now. But it will take Because we're making a very big step from changing one piece of genetic material in one eukaryotic cell to changing all genetic sites and all eukaryotic cells of a giant organism. So there's, there's some time to be had.
1: Dr. Mandel uses CRISPR in his lab to better understand which genetic characteristics play a role in patient response to cancer therapies.
2: Yeah. So in our laboratory, we use CRISPR to genetically modify cancer cell lines to understand what are the determinants of response to certain therapies that are governed by genetic characteristics of tumors? And basically, we found that in certain tumors, certain genetic characteristics predispose those tumors to respond to certain therapies for cancer. And if we can understand what those mechanisms are, then we can better treat patients. And so we use CRISPR in order to recapitulate. Or recreate these genetic models so we can really see how they come into play when we treat these patients with these diseases. And so you can see it's created a nice modeling system for human cancer, principally because human cancer is largely a genetic disease, that we can recapitulate the genetic environment of cancer in the laboratory using these gene editing technologies. And it's been a very powerful tool in advancing our knowledge of how to treat cancer.
1: We asked Dr. Mandels to give us his thoughts on the patent dispute over CRISPR. The two parties with a claim to the patent are Jennifer Doudna from UC Berkeley and Feng Zhang from the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's it's an area that, uh, again, the legal community will have to debate about who truly holds the patent or who truly holds the intellectual property. But the reality is, in science, these breakthroughs are never made by one person or one group, it's really something that builds upon itself over time. You can think about it as building a car. Do you give credit to who builds the car based off the person who develops the engine or the person who makes the drivetrain or who makes the steering wheel? Um, So you can see it's kind of, it builds upon all these little interval breakthroughs. The groups at Berkeley did a lot of the initial pioneering work that discovered the CRISPR system in vitro, uh, meaning in test tubes using yeast and other bacterial models, and then the groups at Harvard implemented those ideas into re-engineering them into human cells and mammalian cells. So you can see that they probably both deserve some credit, and who should really own the intellectual property is is difficult to say. I and mean, that's something that will have to be debated ad nauseum by the legal community. There is, there is this fusion that the scientists should, in determining this, the scientific community needs to be talking to the legal community and vice versa to really understand the complexity of the situations, not only from the scientific angle, which many of the legal community doesn't understand, but also from the legal side, because that's something the scientists don't understand. And so... Uh, Another interdisciplinary area of research and study is important here to really understand both sides of the coin here because it is definitely a complex legal question, but nevertheless it is an exciting breakthrough and it really represents probably the greatest scientific discovery in modern history.
0: The
1: greatest scientific discovery in modern history.
0: The greatest discovery in history? That's huge.
1: But as Dr. Mandel said, the dispute is interdisciplinary, and patent law is not always accommodating to the idea that innovations are often the product of interval breakthroughs, and more than one party could have a right to intellectual property. We sat down with Professor Jacob Sherko and Steve Hollander to discuss the CRISPR patent dispute and its implications for patent law. Professor Sherko is an Associate Professor of Law at the New York Law School Innovation Center for Law and Technology, where he teaches a variety of courses related to intellectual property. Professor Sherko has been following this dispute very closely and has frequently commented on patent matters in popular outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and NPR. Can you give us an overview of how this dispute between Jennifer Dabner from UC Berkeley and Feng Zhang from the Broad Institute started?
4: So way back in 2012, Jennifer Doudna and her co-author, Emmanuel Charpentier, they discovered that they could use uh, this what we call adaptive bacterial immune system. Yes, that's right. Bacteria have immune systems, too. Um, They figured that they could use this adaptive bacterial immune system to re-engineer it to edit genes. And they could do that in in vitro, and they could do that in bacterial cells as well. On top of that, the method was extremely flexible. It was incredibly cheap, and it was amazingly precise. It was essentially better than any other technology out there to do the same task.
0: Steve Hollander explained the difference between prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells, which is pretty crucial to understanding what's at stake here.
3: To put it in the most basic scientific sense, prokaryotic is basically a cell without a nucleus, and eukaryotic cell is a cell with a nucleus. And that's kind of the good barrier to define them: the nucleus being that kind of brain of the cell. And we know it as prokaryotic being like a bacteria that would enter the body, and eukaryotic being the cells that we have as humans, a mammalian cell.
4: Uh, You want to take, like, a brief landscape of the world or life on the world for a moment. I wish I had a good, like, David Attenborough voice here, but I'm not going to pretend like I can do one. Um, All of life on Earth is divided into three domains. We have our bacteria, we have our archaea, and then everything else is a eukaryotic cell. Okay. Um, So, you know, that's a pretty big slice of life, literally speaking.
0: Jennifer Doudna and the team at UC Berkeley developed CRISPR for use in prokaryotic cells.
4: They published a paper in August of 2012. Jennifer Doudna filed her original patent application back in May of 2012. And uh, after it had been digested in the scientific community, this researcher at the Broad Institute, Feng Zhang, figured out a way to modify it to get it to work in what we call eukaryotic cells, those are the cells of higher organisms, like people. Um, and Feng Zhang filed his in October of the same year. And so now, at this point, you have this technology that can be used to edit the genes, not only you know in a test tube or not only in bacteria, but potentially in people, and that seems to open the door to a lot of different possibilities. You know, uh, possibly to cheap, easy, readily administrable gene therapy, which a lot of people think is like the holy grail of molecular biology. While all of this is going on, the sides filed patent applications for this technology. Feng Zhang's attorneys, that is the attorneys at the Broad Institute, mm-hmm. they fast-tracked Feng Zhang's patent application. They knew they have a very lucrative right at hand.
3: And the sooner that they get the process done, the sooner
4: commercial companies,
3: not academic institutions, but commercial institutions that want to use this technology can start paying them the licensing fee. It's a very mm-hmm. lucrative thing that they're holding, and they want to get that money coming in fast and call any questions as far as who owns the ride and who do I pay when I use this technology.
4: Which meant that it got issued before Jennifer Dowdna and Emmanuel Charpentier's patent application got a final decision from the patent office.
1: So do you think that Feng Zhang's lab did that on purpose? Because Jennifer Doudna's results were published. So do you think they suspected that she would also be going for that patent and decided to fast track their application? I mean, I think it was
4: pretty clear at the time, this is in October 2012, that this was going to be an area for which there were a lot of patent applications. Mm -hmm. And patent applications, they are kept secret for 18 months until after they are filed. At that point, they get published by the US US Patent and Trademark Office. But generally speaking, when there's a lot of papers coming about on the same topic in a relatively short period of time, it's a pretty good bet that there's the possibility for a patent thicket. And so as time goes on, it makes increasing sense to, quote unquote, fast track patent applications that are within this area, especially if you think that your patent application is going to claim a broad foundational aspect of that particular technology. So, I mean, you know, the Broad's attorneys, they clearly did it on purpose, although, you know, they didn't know exactly which patent applications were being filed by what other lab groups at the same time.
3: At the same time, we can't forget the context of the difference between a Berkeley and an MIT. MIT is a much more money than a Berkeley does, being a public institution. And they are, first of all, able to pay for this expedited review, which for big institutions isn't a lot of money, but for most people looking for a patent, it's a very expensive fee. And so they, first of all, had the money to do that, to expedite it, and they're granted the right, and they're granted that patent. And if they're granted the patent, then maybe they feel maybe Berkeley would be less likely to bring the interference proceeding or request interference proceeding because they already have the right to it, and they know the legal cost of doing that. So it's less malicious and more of let's get the right faster, so everybody knows who to pay when I use this right.
1: One of the interesting arguments on Doudna's side is that if genes can be edited in test tubes, then it logically follows that this would eventually be done in eukaryotic cells of higher organisms. And the counter to that argument is that if it were so obvious, then why didn't Doudna's lab just do that and go ahead and publish those results?
3: Here we're basically getting to the crux of the most important legal question at the heart of this case: of was it obvious to go from prokaryotic to eukaryotic? And as far as back to that timeline, as far as Berkeley was the first to file, MIT was the second to file, but they were granted their right on their application because of an expedited review process. So they actually held the patent. So they held the patent, and California Berkeley basically said, we invented the same thing. There's just the same invention at hand. We have to have this interference proceeding to look at the question of whether we have the same invention. And if we have the same invention, was it obvious to go from one technology to the other? Well, first of all, we're dealing with something that I'm very interested in, but the intersection of science and law. Right. They're, they're two different realms that, and in patent law, they have to deal with each other a lot. And there's different standards and different views of how fast things should go, what facts mean. So, here, six labs did the obvious step of going from prokaryotic to eukaryotic. Was it really obvious? Maybe there's just six really smart labs that really think they could do it and they lucked out. And the way in this decision, when it was found that there was no interference, You basically look, is it reasonably successful to believe that you can take this technology in a prokaryotic and in a eukaryotic? And they'll probably look at how other technologies work applying from prokaryotic to eukaryotic. Because this isn't the first time we've went from prokaryotic to eukaryotic. Mm -hmm. So look at that. And it's a pretty big jump to say you could apply one technology to the other. And because Six Labs is able to do it and do it successfully, it shows something. But it's not necessarily definitive
4: in this case at hand.
0: Professor Sherko also pointed out that some of this could have been caused by a simple logistical issue.
4: It definitely seems to be obvious to try, right? I mean, knowing that something works in vitro, knowing that something works in bacteria, I think that kind of raises the possibility that it is then obvious to try doing that work in eukaryotic cells. And actually, one of the interesting things that came out of the PTAB hearing, which was back in December of last year, that is December of 2016, was, in fact, Doudna had tried to do this in her laboratory, but that other aspects of her laboratory were actually not set up for eukaryotic cell work. So as someone who used to work in laboratories, you know, laboratories that both dealt with bacteria as well as human cells, there's actually some lab equipment that relatively significant difference between working with the two cell types. You you essentially can work with bacteria and, you know, certain other, uh, let's call them lower-level eukaryotic cells, like yeast, you can essentially work with those in, I don't know, relatively generic, not necessarily sterile environment, and it's going to work just fine. You start monkeying around with human cells, and there's this kind of increasing impetus to avoid your cells being contaminated, um, much in the same way that you know we would want to fight off infections using antibiotics and washing our hands, you also want to keep your cells clean, and so eukaryotic cells, if you're doing a lot of cell work, a lot of human cell work, you tend to do this stuff in what we call tissue culture rooms. And so it just may have been the case, I don't know the exact particulars, it just may have been the case that Doudna's lab just didn't necessarily have like access to that stuff like right at that instant, right? There's also this big push to kind of file patent applications first and do, the, do at least some part of the scientific research second. So... There were some of Doudna's claims in her original patent that, you know, seemed to contemplate the idea that this technology would eventually be used to work eukaryotic cells, but she just may not necessarily have gotten it to work right at that instant, right? So it was obvious to try. It seemed like she was trying. She may not have had access to all the equipment, at least at that immediate time that she could have wanted to, to kind of get this technology to work, to prepare it for a scientific Publication, but Zhang's work in eukaryotic cells came—I mean, almost immediately um, after he learned about Jennifer Down and Emmanuel Charpentier's work.
0: So, as you can tell, lots of still unanswered questions here, including.
1: So what is the difference between first to invent and first to file, and why did we go through this rule change, and does this nuance affect the outcome here?
4: Wouldn't have had to spend so much money on lawyers. The research institutions, for example, would not have had to spend so much money on lawyers. So you have
3: labs that are dragging their feet and not pushing. As far as what they can do scientifically, not because they don't have the technology, but because they're scared of, if they use this technology, they don't want to basically get, have to suffer an injunction or be forced to stop or pay
4: because they were using technology they didn't have right to.
1: What do you think the chances of Berkeley's success are on appeal?
4: You have, you know, inventor A, inventor A invent something first. You have inventor B, inventor B essentially comes up with the exact same thing but second in time but for one reason or another inventor b gets him or herself to the patent office faster guess what inventor b wins inventor a was slack
0: all this and more next week on part two of our discussion on CRISPR. stay tuned Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hirschwitz. Special thanks to Falguni Joshi, our guest correspondent for this two-part episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @fordhamiplj or on facebook.com slash Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.